is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 2, Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist in Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed. This episode's brought to you by Artwork Archive. Artwork Archive is an online platform that makes it easy to manage all aspects of an art career. I know this firsthand because I actually use Artwork Archive to organize and manage my own business. Artwork Archive tracks your artwork, sales, shows, and contacts, automatically builds schedules, and sends you reminders so you're always one step ahead. And for a limited time, Beyond the Studio listeners get 20% off when you get started with their free trial at www.artworkarchive.com beyond. Start connecting with collectors, getting organized, and building your art career now. Today on Beyond the Studio podcast, we're talking with Seattle-based artist Juan Alonso Rodriguez, whose work is in numerous public and private collections and who has extensive experience with public art, um, which are just one of the many reasons we're really excited to talk to Juan today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Would you like to start just by giving us a little more background on your own life and creative journey thus far? Sure. The thing that I want people to know is that I am self-taught, which kind of plays into Mm -hmm. this whole idea of, you know, when you're asking about uh, going beyond the studio, the way that I started doing art was just for myself. And so I was, I did not plan to have art be my career. I was born in Cuba. I came to the U.S. when I was almost 10 years old. First lived in Miami, Florida. The first part of my career was in music. I used to sing and play guitar for a living when I was living in, in Miami. Oh, okay. <laughs> then I moved to San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco for a couple of years, way back. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, 79 to 81. And I actually lived in the corner of Hayden Ashbury. Okay. I briefly went back to Florida. I uh, lived in Key West for about nine months, and I moved to Seattle in 1982. Oh, really going from one corner to the complete opposite. Yeah, and I actually did it again. In 2002, I went back and lived in Miami for a year. Okay. But then, you know, then there was relationships and things like that that kind of brought me back to Seattle a year later. But basically, I've been in the Pacific Northwest since '82. Like I said, I'm self-taught. I've never taken taken any art classes. I've never gone to art school. It's all been pretty much on my own. Mm-hmm. It's been an interesting process, and and everything everything that I do is pretty much an experiment, and and I love it. I I, I look forward to my next experiment. Yeah, and that's a reason we we're excited to talk with you too. I think just to highlight the variety of ways that artists come into their own path and and just to recognize that there are so many different paths uh, towards becoming an artist. So how did you start to transition then from music into visual art? So when I moved to Seattle, I had briefly, when I lived in San Francisco, uh, I was working, you know, cleaning hotel rooms. <laughs> and I, I knew the manager, the hotel manager, and he needed some artwork for the hallways. And he says, I, I know that you like to paint can you do a couple of pieces for for the hotel and I said sure you know of course I didn't I really didn't know what I was doing because all the artwork that I had ever done was just you know sketching on my own and using paints and not for not for sale but I decided that I wasn't going to say no to the opportunity that was it as far as visual art before I moved to Seattle when I moved here I was really excited about being in this brand new city Uh, I had never been here before I had pretty much just packed everything up and and moved sight unseen. I was really excited about being here. I found this amazing apartment for not a whole lot. I think I paid $325 a month wow. uh, for this oh, whole so a whole floor. And then I had a whole basement um, and, and, it, and it was great. And so uh, the first job that I got 
was in a frame shop because I had worked, I had done picture framing before when I lived in San Francisco and also when I lived in, in Miami towards the end. So I knew how to do that and I got a job at a frame shop and I wanted to be surrounded by art in my new place, but I knew that I couldn't afford to buy real art. I didn't want to have posters on the walls and so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do some of my own work, whatever that turns out to be and I'll just put some of that on the walls as I, I was working on this frame shop in this frame shop and I was bringing the work that I was producing to have it framed because I would get a discount and the owner of the shop said why don't you frame some of the stuff and hang it up on the walls here and see what kind of reaction you get so I thought sure you know I can hang it here for a little bit and then take it home and the thing is people started asking about the work and and some people started buying the work and there was a gallery that was around the corner from the frame shop that would always bring their work to be framed there and they asked me if I wanted if I would be interested in showing my work there and I thought oh well this is different (laughs) because I like I said I never thought of it as a career I just thought of it as something I like to do and that's Mm -hmm. sort of how it began and and they were pretty helpful as to you know kind of guiding me a little bit and telling me to start building up a resume and and entering local art fairs and local art shows that you know you would get a little bit of recognition and and then and build up the resume that way so that's kind of how I got started and I you know I, I was thinking this morning that a lot of times I feel that I'm on this driverless car that's taking me somewhere and I don't really know exactly where it's taking me but I'm good for the ride you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it sounds like the very beginning um, of your work as an artist evolved really naturally and it was just a matter of saying yes to those opportunities that did come your way was there a point where you decided or made a really conscious decision to shift towards being really active and proactive about viewing your work as a more integral part of your career? Well, yeah, because like I said, I had always liked making artwork, but you know, growing up in a very blue collar family, it was not something that, that was encouraged and it was not something that was even mentioned as a career. It was something that, mm-hmm. you know, oh, go, go to your room and do some of your little doodles and, and, and just kind of go away. And I realized that people were looking at it and looking at it seriously because this, you know, this is a legitimate gallery that was around the corner. And I thought, well, this is something I really, really enjoy doing. And if someone wants to reward me for something that I really love doing, what would be my reason to not pursue that? So I thought I'm going to try to learn as much as possible as to how the business works and try to become a better painter and just try to keep that momentum that kind of started out without me intending it to start. I think when people started looking at the work seriously and then I started entering some local minor shows and I was getting awards for the artwork that I was submitting I thought well maybe this is a this could be a legitimate career for me. Today's episode is supported by Superfine Art Fair. Do you ever feel like you're creating great art but not selling enough of it? Well, you're not alone. Superfine provides a hack into an evergreen emerging art market for independent artists and galleries. With affordably priced booth space and annual fairs in LA, New York, Washington, DC, and more markets each year, Superfine's a way to level up your art business year-round. Applications for Superfine LA have been extended to January 31st, and applications are available for Superfine NYC and Superfine DC. Apply at www www.superfine.world/exhibit. That's www.superfine.world/exhibit. Can you tell us about your experience living and working in Seattle? How you feel like that's played into the development of your work and career? The time that I moved to Seattle, 1982, Seattle was kind of still going, slightly coming out of a, a depression. I remember there was at least one billboard that said, with the last person leaving Seattle, please turn off the lights. Um, Boeing had laid off a lot of people. Oh, man. Uh, it was bad. But uh, what I did when I was still living in Key West, Florida, I really wanted to move to a bigger city. Uh, Key West is, is a very small town. And I really thought, you know, I want to do something on my own. I'm, I'm not very good at following directions, so I'm not very good at uh, having a boss. <laughs> Relatable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah, I want to be independent. I want to. I I don't think I want to work for someone else. And I knew that when I came here, I would have to you know get a job to to start with. But I thought I'm going to write to the Chamber of Commerce. This is before internet, so you know this is 1982. <laughs>、um, so I I wrote hand wrote letters to the、uh, Chamber of Commerce of different cities on both coasts. I had lived in San Francisco. I didn't think that I wanted to go back to San Francisco. I was in a new relationship, and you know things were different, and the AIDS crisis was going on, and it, you know was, I thought I wanted a fresh start. Seattle sent me a lot of information back, and I kind of liked the fact that this seemed to be a place where not everything had been done, and there was room for experimentation. And I thought, well, this sounds kind of perfect for me because that's what I want to do. I want to experiment and I want to try things out. And this sounds like a a place that would allow me to do that. And I I'm pretty thankful that I think I chose the right, the right place. Seattle, especially at that time, was definitely very、uh, experimental. All kinds of people were doing all kinds of bizarre things, and everything was. I think the attitude was like, yeah, go for it. Uh, go for it, and let's see what happens. And and if you fail, you know, just try again, and and hopefully you'll do it better than the second time. And I think you know, even though the the whole like grunge scene came a little bit later, I think that attitude from earlier on is what、uh, made a lot of different types of art and music and visual art, music, dance. There was a lot of really interesting dance going on at that time as well here in Seattle. And I think that that atmosphere really helped, and it it definitely helped me because, like I said, I had no training whatsoever, and I was extremely naive about how to how to proceed. And the fact that not everything had been put in place helped me, so that I could create my own path. So I definitely, I think Seattle has made a, a huge, huge difference in allowing me to have this career. Hmm. I think it's so easy to assume, based on what the world around us says, if you want to be a successful artist, you should be in LA or in New York, and that's where you get your work seen, and that's how you get it out there. But I think there's something so Important about being in a city that inspires you, or not even a city. You know, wherever you live, you can find a way to make it work, and you can find that creative community. And I also am.、Uh, I grew up in South Florida, around the West Palm area, and I I didn't feel super inspired creatively there. But the second I moved to Baltimore, I fell in love with the creative community here, and and realized this is where I wanted to be. It, it was where I was thriving, and. I think place can make such a huge difference in the way that you create and the type of work that you're creating. And I think also, you know, if if you've gone to art school and you've graduated and you've come out of、uh, university and you decide, okay, this I have I have set this in mind. I'm this is going to be my career, so I am going to move to LA or I am going to move to 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 New York or some some of the larger art centers. That sort of makes some sort of sense, but for me, it was. I think I would have been like dead on arrival if I would have gone to New York directly or or gone to L.A. and and I think I would have been eaten alive because <laughs> I was so naive about the whole the whole thing. So I I think I personally chose well again without even knowing that I was doing that. Yeah, I think because、uh, it doesn't just have to do with exposure、um, to your work, but the way that place、uh, supports or facilitates your own work and creative growth, and I think those things are almost more important than you know your ability to have access to a wide audience. Because、um, I think you, that you can find, but it seems like the the bigger challenge for a lot of artists is finding the space, finding support,、um, time, all of those things to be able to. Just nurture their own creative work. I had one little question. So these letters of inquiry you're sending to the Chamber of Commerce were these,、um, or I'm sorry, were these letters of inquiry? Like, was this just a form of research to try and get a sense for the local art scenes? It was sort of no. I'm not even for the art scene, just for for the city itself.、Uh, it、okay. was a letter saying, you know, could you send me some information about your city? I'm looking into、uh, moving away, and I. I have selected a few cities. Yours, you know, is one of them, kind of thing. And yeah, and most cities didn't even reply. <laughs> Seattle sent、uh-huh. this. Seattle sent this whole packet of information. I mean, I think they were pretty desperate to get people back in here. <laughs> <laughs> and then after, then after that, I I subscribed to the Sunday paper. Mm-hmm. And so I would I would get the the Sunday Seattle Times and PI delivered to me in Key West like about a week later. <laughs> 
Got it. Well, you seem uh, very involved today with the city of Seattle in a number of ways uh, through special grants program, uh, purchase awards through the Office of Arts and Culture, exhibitions in the mayor's office. Um, I also read that you are a Seattle Arts Commissioner and serve on the city's Public Art Advisory Committee. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us about the type of public support available to Seattle artists and your own experience with this. Seattle and, uh, and Washington State uh, was one of the first cities and states that developed the Percent for Art programs. So I am part of the Seattle Arts Commission. I, I'm, a, I'm a Seattle Arts Commissioner, uh, but I've also taken advantage of uh, creating work for the state of Washington. So... Mm-hmm. And just for anyone who's who's doesn't know, can you just tell us what the percent for our program is? Don't quote me on this, but it's like a one percent for buildings that are built with taxpayer money. So one one percent of the the total budget uh, has to be spent on art, and I believe that that's for the city, and I believe that the state is point one percent, but I am not a hundred percent sure because it always it's always changing around and. I'm not a numbers person. <laughs> <laughs> Same. I didn't realize Seattle was the first place to implement that, though. I don't know if it was the first, uh, but it was one of the first. And and a lot yeah, of a early. lot of cities have looked to Seattle to see how how the whole system works. It's interesting that you know a, a smaller city like Seattle, maybe because it was a smaller city, it was able to create these kind of programs in fact then you know slightly on a tangent but my studio is in pioneer square pioneer square is this arts district where a lot of galleries are and a lot of artist studios and the pioneer square gallery walk uh i believe that was the very first official gallery walk that was started by a couple of gallery owners that thought hey why don't we put little steps on the sidewalks and kind of let people know that you know you can go from this gallery to this other gallery and we'll just designate one night out of, out of the month where we can do that so i think when when you're a smaller city not like i said not everything had been done you can create these new things that people are willing to try out mm-hmm. and so when that came about did that just seem a natural sort of next thing for you to get involved with? Or can you tell us about how you started to um, engage with that new kind of emerging public art scene? So um, I think my becoming an arts commissioner, this happened uh, a couple of years ago. So I had to work up to it. I've been working in Seattle for over you know 30 years. So I don't think I would have been ready to even consider being a commissioner way back. Um, I think I had to be ready. I, I think I had to get a little bit of experience behind me in order to feel confident to even apply. And, and secondly, to be accepted because you do go through a, a vetting process. I was recommended by uh, a former uh, city councilman. He asked if I was interested in becoming an arts commissioner and I said yes and I still had to be approved by the full city council and the reason why I wanted to be I've I've always wanted to be involved with the community I felt that you know in order for me to succeed and in order for me to learn to continue to learn I think being involved with your community is really important and I thought well I've been extremely lucky to have done all these things that I've done without a whole lot of help so maybe I can be the person to help other artists and 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 also I want to contribute to the city itself I I feel like this city has given me so so much that I feel that I want to give back and I want to make sure that that the art programs work as well as they possibly can and how can I do that well I have to be involved in order for for me to make a difference Mm -hmm. so I felt okay at, at this point I think I'm ready for for this. Once I was accepted into the Arts Commission, most commissioners serve on at least one subcommittee. So then I thought, well, the Public Art Advisory Committee seems to be a perfect fit for me because I have created some public works. And I know the process from the artist's point of view. And so I think it, it might be a good thing, not just for for the committee, but for me to see what the other side feels like. It's been a great experience, and I'm, I'm also learning constantly how it all works. Having been on both sides helps me as an artist, and it also helps me as, as a committee member to realize what that artist is going through when they're coming into our scary boardroom and presenting <laughs> 
artwork and presenting their ideas. Yes. And so just for um, artists who may not be familiar with the process, um, but are interested in potentially applying or getting involved with public art projects, can you talk a little bit what the process for that is like from, you know, applying to a call to potentially getting chosen um, to present a proposal and and just what's the cycle of that process look like? So I'd like to start by kind of going a little bit before that because I think a lot of sure. a lot of people create uh, studio work and they they feel that there's this barrier between studio work and the idea of public art is a little bit scary. So I've actually taught some workshops on on that particular theme. It's like, are, are you ready for public art? Are you ready to to take that step? Because it's it can be re- extremely stressful uh, and it's not for everyone. And I think I you know, my hair turned, started turning very gray the minute I started making public art. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. but, and just uh, a very different <laughs> process, too, even than doing uh, maybe client-driven work if oh, yeah, artists yes. have experience doing yes. commercial projects. So I'm curious to hear just how the process for public art differs. And, and the first thing you have to do is, okay, people think that because public art is art by committee well it, it, it really isn't it really is you you can create your own work uh, you just have to know how to translate the work that you've been doing in your studio into a medium into a, a material that can be outdoors that it can be permanent that can sustain weathering and, and and all of that so you have to think about okay so let's not go from creating like small paintings on canvas to I'm going to create, you know, a, a bridge that's going to be, you know, 100 feet long or whatever, you know, baby steps. Like the first public art that is considered public art piece that I created was a painting. It was a state government building or a federal government building in Portland, Oregon. And they were looking for artists to create work for inside and out. So I had the opportunity of choosing. And since this was my first attempt, I thought, okay, I'm going to go with what I know. I know how to paint. Uh, I went into a much larger scale than I had ever done. But I thought, let's let's just give this a try. So um, once you get your first public art piece done, do you have that on your resume? And then that makes it easier to take the next step. Then my next step was also painting. So then now I have two pieces done, two, two public artworks done. So then I thought, okay, so now I feel confident that not only do I feel confident, but when I apply for a public project, the people on the jury are going to go, okay, so he has completed public projects. He knows how to work a budget. He knows how to de- deliver the work on time. So all, all those things mm-hmm. are, all, all of those are components when you're working uh, on a public project. There are calls for art all the time from either you know the city the county the government uh, state government and there are also some semi-private public projects uh, one of the one of the projects that I did was for a, an elementary school that for them to build out their school they had to buy an alley and so that incorporated the city property so it meant that it was a public and private project all these calls you I subscribe to all these lists that do calls for art. So I'm always reading to see if there's something that interests me. Also, the state of Washington has a roster. I'm sure other states and other cities do that that as well. So I'm on the state roster for public artists. So I subscribe to a lot of lists that send out opportunities for artists and so I look at Mm -hmm. them and see if there's anything that applies to me there's something that I'm interested in doing and then I apply and if with the state roster they're constantly showing the works of artists that are in the roster and whatever building is being built or a lot of times at schools I've done a couple of projects for schools there's that percentage and then there's a committee usually with the building that selects the finalists and then out of the finalists, you get a, you know a couple of people, and then you create a presentation. You go in, and usually the first step is what is it that they're looking for. I love the doing my homework part because I feel like the the more thorough you are in finding out about the history of the building, where this might be going into, who is around the building, who are the people that are actually going to be living with the work, uh, who is it going to serve? Like if it's a school, what, what, what type of school? I did a, a project for a technical school. So I took that into consideration. I did a lot of research as to what the school was before, what type of students are going to that school. And then you go back and you create a proposal. 
and mm -hmm. you you present this in front of um, it's usually I don't know a committee of like five or six people and you get feedback and the thing is the more prepared you are and the more reasons you have to explain why your proposal is what it is the better your chances are to be successful and be accepted and be selected for the, the final project. They usually give you a budget, so you have to make sure that if you are going to have something fabricated by someone else, if you don't do your own fabrication, you have to make sure that you have enough money to hire a fabricator, you have to make sure you have money to hire an engineer, uh, have engineered drawings. Uh, if you don't do CAD drawing, you have to have somebody who will do that for you. Insurance, uh, you know, there's all these little components that a lot of people don't think about. In fact, one of the reasons I think people have a hard time with the money that goes into public art because they feel like, oh my God, look at this artist is getting $100,000 for this. And, and I'm thinking, no, no, the artist is getting about 15% of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the rest of the money is pretty much spread out in the community for other people that are doing work because of that artwork. Right. So for these proposals, there's a lot of research that goes into it, it sounds. And would you say as the artist, you're at that point in time calling around to get quotes, talking with fabricators or sourcing materials to determine the costs for all of the things that might go into the final project? Absolutely. Uh, you almost have to become uh, a contractor. In fact, mm -hmm. there are some projects where you are actually asked to take to have a contractor license oh, wow. um, and oh, wow. you know that's one of the things that I would like to to change a little mm -hmm. bit uh, and I think it, it, it is starting to change and not just because of me but I, I think people are realizing that the artist is best at creating artwork and not necessarily at being a contractor yeah. I would like for these agencies to think a little bit more about what are you hiring the artist to do? Because if I have to reinvent the wheel every time I get a contract, that takes my time and it also, I don't have the expertise that some of these other folks might have. So I think the idea of pairing fabricators and contractors and, and, and folks together makes a whole lot of sense. And I've, I've actually tried to do that. I did a presentation a while back for Town Hall here in Seattle that just, it was trying to connect people that did all kinds of different things having to do with uh, creating a public work. Mm-hmm. So as the artist, you're really the lead on that project, assembling the team if you're selected, as opposed to the city offering contacts or connections to kind of make the work possible? Yeah, um, with my experiences in working for the state of Washington, uh, the state of Washington cannot, by law, recommend oh, a, fabri a fabricator to me and you know one of my suggestions was well the way the same way that there's a roster for artists there might be a roster for fabricators oh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, so that they're vetted and then I can go to this database and say okay I'm looking for someone who works in stainless steel so here are all these people that are working in stainless steel I'm gonna call those people as opposed to having to ask everyone that I know <laughs> who is a good person yeah just to, go to the know. phone book and right start. right oh, and yeah. I, so i think i think that there is an easier way uh -huh. and i'm kind of that little needle on the side of a lot of art, arts organizations because i'm constantly saying hey you know maybe this could be done in a slightly easier way in order to attract more people more variety and people you know kind of like me that haven't had the privilege of arts education or even a college education that might be a little bit intimidated by the whole process. Mm -hmm. I'm not easily intimidated, so it's not, you know, it's not an issue for me, but I, I completely understand that it is an intimidating thought to, oh my God, I'm going to create this, this artwork that's going to be out there in public for, you know, as long as it lasts and, you know, it's going to last at least 20, 30 years, 50 years, maybe 100, who knows? Yeah. There's a lot of weight on the artist to to do all that, all, all the coordinating. I'm sure it's immensely helpful having the perspective of being an artist who's completed public art projects in serving on the Public Art Advisory Committee. And I think what you had said much earlier was kind of key, which is that it's about translating your work or your practice mm -hmm. into the realm of public art. 
Um, and maybe that's the barrier for a lot of artists is it's just such a different audience that you are talking to that it's really a means of just developing a different language and, um, and understanding the process too, I think is really helpful. Are there things that you've learned from working on the other end of it on the public art uh, committee side that either surprised you or you think would be really helpful for other artists to know who are interested in applying for projects but maybe less familiar with that end of the process? I think clarity is so important. Even as I'm talking to you, and I've, I've been told by a couple of people that I talk, as, and I, a lot of times I assume that somebody is, knows a lot of details about what I'm talking about. <laughs> And I think, and I, I leave out certain things. Um, I think as an artist, I have an idea. And I think that if I say, well, oh, I kind of, I want to do this and this, and I try to explain it a little bit, I think people are going to get it. But it's not necessarily so. Because the person that's not thinking as an artist needs a lot more explanation as to what that is that you're thinking about. Uh, it's mm-hmm. I, I, like, I'm surprised that, for example, even works in my studio people will come in and go oh i don't know what this is going to look like in my space and i'm thinking really you don't because <laughs> i i could visualize it in your space but i don't know why you can't and of course i don't say that but <laughs> it's when when you're an artist and you're presenting an idea for a public project the clarity has to be there there's been times when i've been on the public art advisory committee and an artist has been presenting and it has helped me to hear their lack of clarity. As a presenting artist myself, I go, oh, okay, this is what this, this, this artist is not doing, and this is exactly what I should be doing, is I, I need to be very clear when I'm presenting to a group of people that may or may not be artists, or may not have the background of what it takes to create. Right. You have a concept, of what it's supposed to do, what it's supposed to be, what it's supposed to look like, but the work is not done yet. I think clarity in what you're trying to do, uh, your concept, sticking to that idea and being able to articulate why what you're trying to do fits the concept and fits what the work is asking for, what the audience is asking for. Who is your client? What does your client want? And are you addressing those issues Clearly, And so that's probably the, the very first thing that I would say to an artist is just be very, very thorough and, and really go through everything twice and three times and make sure that questions that come up that you may not even think are questions because they're so clear in your head that you can answer them and answer them satisfactorily and, and, and clearly. Was a lot of this um, just learned knowledge through submitting your own proposals and then beginning to take on public art projects yourself? Or were there other sources um, or resources that you were looking to on public art, the process, just how to go about um, putting all this together? There's a couple of resources. There's a couple of organizations here um, in Seattle. Actually, Artist Trust is a wa- uh, Washington State organization, and they're really good resources for artists. But I think the one of the most important things, uh, no matter no matter what it is that you're applying for, whether it's uh, public art or even a competition or a grant or anything, is when you get a rejection. And you know, rejection is part of being an artist because most of the times you're going to be rejected because the competition is just, you know, (laughs) it's huge. So there's only so many pieces of pie and there is a lot Mm -hmm. of artists. So whenever you get a rejection, contact the organization where where you got rejected and say, what could I have done to make my presentation better? And don't be defensive. Just take the feedback that you're getting and take it as you're going to learn something from it, even if you don't agree with it. There's been times where I've gotten feedback and I thought, well, that's just ridiculous because this doesn't really make any sense. But I'm thinking, okay, this is not about me. They're telling you what your panelists, what your peers were saying and how they were perceiving what you were presenting. So don't make it about you. Just make it about, okay, that's how other people are understanding this even though that's not what I meant or that's I don't feel like I should be judged on this you know there's a lot of things that we don't want to be judged on but we are 
So you have to take that as that criticism as that's just information. That is feedback mm -hmm. and information that is valuable for you to know so that you can take that into consideration the next time you apply for something. Yeah, and such a great reminder too to reach out and ask for that type of feedback because I think that's yeah. something a lot of people don't do and you know, you get a rejection and it just kind of goes to the bottom of your pile or inbox and so right. I think just to reach out and be gracious and to, to you know to ask for feedback is a really important key there too. It's just so easy to take those things personally whenever you get a rejection when it's almost never personal. It usually has to do with maybe your stuff isn't documented very well or maybe you know maybe it was about the communication or maybe just someone else had a, a more thoroughly researched project or maybe they decided to go in a different direction it's easy to to get in the mindset that like i personally was rejected when it was just that particular proposal or that particular idea maybe wasn't fully sussed out enough to be chosen yeah and, and that's that is one thing that i've learned from being on on jury panels and on the arts commission and the public art advisory committee is that i really can't even recall one single time where it's been personal not even one like it's, yeah. it's just not even it's not even a thing it's just a lot of times you get several people that are that would be great for the project and you have to narrow it down to who would be the best and who who would create something that we would all be very happy to see and that would be long lasting and, and that would fit the criteria best. And it's never it's never about anything personal. Uh, I've never had that experience. Yeah. Do you feel like from the committee end of it, you see the same artists reapplying to projects? Is that something you notice that artists that reapply are potentially more likely to get future proposals just through the committee becoming familiar with their work? Or is it, is it a different committee every time? The panelists are always different, but uh -huh. I actually see that repeat applier happening less and less uh -huh. because I think the opportunities are getting better for younger or less experienced artists to apply. Yeah, and, and that is something that I, with the Arts Commission, have, have tried to to make happen. One example is by creating opportunities for temporary works. And so that gives artists an opportunity to create uh, works that are temporary, that level of stress is not as high as something that's gonna be permanent. Mm -hmm. So it gives the artist a taste for what the process is like. Once they feel, okay, I can accomplish this, I can do, I, cre I can create this temporary project, then they're gonna have a little bit more confidence and they're gonna have a little bit more knowledge about how to proceed with the next step. So by offering those first steps, I think it makes the pool a little bit bigger. And you don't have this. I, I think early on, I, I remember thinking, wow, the same people get these projects all the time. And now being being part of these committees and being part of the, the commission, I don't see that happening as much. And I think I think that it, there has been a concerted effort to mm -hmm. uh, to expand that pool of artists. This episode's presented with support from Superfine Art Fair. How can you build higher sales and long-term collectors through accessible art? Through its transparent, accessible, and friendly approach, Superfine specializes in providing a bridge for the art curious to become full-fledged art collectors. And the results show, with more than $1.5 million in art sales to date and the most rapidly growing art fair platform in the country, Superfine fairs represent the future of the art market, a place where anyone can become a collector and artists and galleries reap the rewards. Ready to apply? Applications for Superfine LA have been extended until January 31st, and applications are now available for Superfine NYC and Superfine DC. Booth space is limited, so we encourage you to apply now. To apply, simply visit www.superfine.world exhibit. That's www.superfine.world exhibit. Can you tell us about some of the projects that you've completed and maybe any experiences working on large scale or permanent installations where you've had to really expand your experience or knowledge base, whether it's working with a new material or just because of the scope of the work? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. Like one, one of the easiest projects that I that I did was uh, for the Seattle International 
uh, Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, and they were building a, a new a new part of the airport, a, a south terminal. And what the Port of Seattle decided to do was to invite nine artists to create designs for nine columns that were being built in in that particular area. And so I was one of the nine artists selected. What I loved about that project is that I did exactly what I do best, was to create the design for the column. I offered them two designs for them to choose from because I was really excited about this project. King County Arts Commission at the time chose one fabricator, a glass mosaic artist, uh, from New York, who also has a studio in Venice, he was going to do all the glass mosaic columns. So he was taking the artist's designs and translating them into his craft, which was glass mosaic. And I thought that that was a brilliant way of doing it because every single column is amazing. Each artist did what they did best. Mm-hmm. Then the the mosaic artist was working with all these different artists. We each went to the studios to pick out the the colors of the glass mosaics and make sure that we approved of the way it was being done. So it was it was a really amazingly great experience. So that was one way of dealing with it. Another project that I did a little bit more recently was for the Washington State Arts Commission and this was for a for a high school. I was asked to to come up with a concept for some artwork for a high school. It's called Chief South High School. Now, Chief South Seattle is a, a translation or a bastardized way of saying South, and I'm not even uh, pronouncing it correctly. But he was the chief of the Duwamish tribe here in this area, and the, the city was named after him. And so I thought, okay, I have to I have to take that into consideration. The high school is very very international. It's a it's a very diverse population, and I wanted it to be something that was very. Seattle had some to do with the Duwamish tribe. Even though it's not nationally recognized, it is definitely recognized here in the city. So I came up with the concept, and then everybody that was on on the committee loved it, but it was still rejected. So I thought, okay, what is going on? One of the people on the committee who was involved with the Duwamish tribe just bailed out, and she didn't want anything to do with this anymore. So I thought, okay, something there's something going on that's deeper than just my proposal. So I did a little digging and mm-hmm. found out that, uh, you know, somebody, and I still to this day don't know, somebody had decided that what they really wanted were totem poles in front of um, the auditorium. And oh. the thing is, you know, not every tribe does totem poles, and then the totem poles that I think were desired for this particular place by this particular person were from Alaska. You can't have Alaskan totem poles in front of a, a high school that is named after Chief South. Yeah, it doesn't, <laughs> so, doesn't make any sense. No. So once I found that out, the first thing I did was go to the Duwamish Longhouse and talk to the chairperson of the tribe. And I, you know, I remember her first question was, why isn't there a native artist selected to do this? And I said, honestly, I don't know. I think it probably would have been a great idea. However, I was chosen and I want to do this work, but I want to respect the tribe and I want to create artwork that pays homage to the tribe, but does not do anything derivative. Uh, I don't want to do any work that has anything to do with what a native artist would do. So I had a really good conversation with her. I learned a lot about the Duwamish tribe that I things that I didn't know. And so I went back to the drawing board, went back to my studio and came up with a concept that honored Chief Self, honored the Duwamish tribe, honored traditions. And it was a very, very personal design that had to do with my own father's designs uh, that he had created that I remembered as a kid when I lived in Cuba. So you had to navigate all these things that don't necessarily have to do with you. Mm-hmm. I think that's why it's so important to like just dive in and just really find out as much as possible, get as much information as you possibly can. It changed my perspective because the next time that I got a public project, I just asked a lot of questions right right off the bat. Okay, is there anything that you yeah. need? Is there anything that you need to tell me that I should know before I come up with a proposal? Is there anything that you absolutely do not want? Is there anything that you had in mind already? Um, what are you know, what are the things that are definitely this is not going to happen? Because you you want to get rid of all that 
nonsense right off the bat. Especially with uh, public art, I think it's so important to be aware of the context that your work will exist in and remember that it is a collaboration and to keep in mind the communities that the work will be for and around. And I think that's such a, a difference from working to execute your own vision as an artist you know if you're working alone in a studio and by nature it's so much more collaborative so I think for some artists it prompts those different questions so that it can become this happy marriage of being able to realize a vision that you have as an artist while also as you said respecting and honoring the the place or the community that the work is made for or that it exists in because it really has uh, such a different life for that reason. And you know, one one more thing that really helps is to develop a good relationship with the contractor, with the architect, if there's a designer involved, just having an open communication, that really is helpful. And and whoever whoever the lead is in the committee that selected you, you know, have have a good working relationship with them. I think a lot of it is about controlling the expectations or at at the very least understanding the expectations as you approach a project, knowing what is required of you and what the community that you are collaborating with or or working with, what they expect from you from the piece. It's so necessary to to learn to understand how to move forward with clear communication. Yeah. And and taking... Uh, whatever you're told, like really listening. And again, I, and I know I said this before, but don't become um, defensive because you, you may not agree with what somebody's telling you, but they are thinking it. They are thinking it and they're thinking it for whatever reason they are thinking it. And so you need to take that into consideration that your public is thinking this. So you may not be wanting to project a certain thing, but that is what you're projecting. And so listen to it and take it, you know, Take it in, let it sink in, and then, you know, then respond. Uh, this question's a little bit off of the public arts direction. Do you have any tools or resources that you've used that have really helped you to grow as an artist? Well, I think because I didn't have the privilege of having that arts education or even, you know, business education, mm-hmm. I think that the idea of, of networking, I know I, I hate that word. <laughs> I, I, you know, everybody does. I'll put it this way. I think the idea of making contacts and developing good working relationships is really, really important. Being self-taught at pretty much everything that I do, I think whenever you have a question and you, you need to have information about something, the more resources you have as, as far as people, I mean, I'm talking about human resources that are willing to talk to you that are willing to help you because they know that you're going to help them if the time comes when the time comes i think this is why i I believe in being part of the community and not only is it important because everyone should be but i think it's important even if you look at it selfishly you're planting seeds you're planting seeds with people and you're going to grow along with them and you need that constant uh, support. You need you need a support system. Nobody accomplishes anything on their own. I I mm-hmm. hate I hate hearing people say that. Well, I've done this all on my own. Well, not really. <laughs> you had help along the way. You know, there's no way that somebody could accomplish everything they do in life on their own 100% of the time. Yeah. So I think having those having those contacts and having those people that have your back because you have their back and have it be a sincere relationship. I think that helps yeah. a lot. Be there for your community and they can be there for you too. Absolutely. And and for your your customers. You know, that's that's the thing. It's like if you want people to buy your work because that's what you do for a living, you don't want to do something that's going to make them think you're being rude or you're turning them off or you don't care or like no, I I want people to come back to my studio. I want people to collect my work there's there's a sense of it's like a reward and i'm not just talking about the monetary aspect of it when i'm creating work that's what i get out of it the creative part of it that's what i get out of uh, making art once i'm done with the artwork i feel like it's done its purpose for me and now it's time for it to go and make somebody else happy and so i really want that work to make somebody else happy and and i and i want them to know that do you have any final words that you would want to share with our audience you know some of the things that i i tell 
artists, especially younger artists that are starting out, whether they've recently graduated or, or self-taught, it doesn't really matter. Put yourself out there. Be available. Don't make the mistake that a lot of people do is like overpricing your work as the minute you get out of school. You know, and it's like, oh my God, this is like the best thing I've ever created. This, this is worth $5,000. It's like, no, 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 slow down. Um, make sure that people want to purchase those few first few pieces because they're the ones that are going to show them to somebody else. And I always tell people that, look, the first few pieces that you sell, if you feel a little bad that you almost like gave them away, that's a good thing. <laughs> that that means you probably price them right because you can always go up, but it's not a good idea to see somebody's work, you know, be put in the basement, basement blue blue sale or whatever you know, <laughs> Kmart does. Um, so <laughs> just be you know be available, price your work to gradually go up find your support find find the people that are your tribe your family in the art world in your community develop your audience develop you can't rely on one small group of people you have to constantly be growing that and take every opportunity that you get whether it's arts related or not to to be available and to let people know what you do and uh, where can our audience find your work you can find my work on my website, which is juanalonsostudio.com, and make sure that you spell Alonso with an S, <laughs> not a Z, because everybody makes that mistake. So that would be the best place to first take a look. There's several pages on my website, and it does include some of the public works that I've in, that I've created, as well as the studio work. Perfect. Juan, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been so great to talk with you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for uh, including me. And that's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of our episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. If you're listening to this episode via iTunes, we'd love to ask you to give us a rating and a review because it really makes a big difference. The more reviews we get, the more people we can connect with. And the more we connect, the better we get. And we're trying to get real good here. Oh no, I lost my train of thought. Um, I think it's, it's a good... Uh, never mind, I don't even know where I was going with it.